Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a, a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of All Better. Today's guest is Dino Campitelli. Dino is the executive director of Serenity Lodge for the last two decades. Dino is an AAC, and Dino uses his years in addiction and his continuous years in sobriety to influence young men at this facility. There's a distinct line in Dino's bio on his website that it really popped out to me that says, Dino sees beyond the behaviors that keeps his residents stuck and helps them to both see themselves clearly and understand the importance of changing their behavior based on intellect uh, and allowing their feelings to follow in order to discover the benefits of a sober life. It's a really distinct line, and we get to talk about that because uh, there's a lot to unpack there. And in there is what addiction truly is, and I believe the path to recover from it. It's very interesting. Dino's been a friend of mine for 20 years and uh, someone I admire. Dino also runs his facility on 12-step principles, which kind of is rare these days. You're seeing that less and less, but... Being a person that practices 12 steps and myself, I'm always interested to see how is that unpack up there at Serenity Lodge. Um, let's hear from Dino. Well, here we are with Dino Campitelli. Uh, Dino and I have been friends and have known each other for about 20 years now, and I just gave you a little intro, but for context and for anyone listening, I want you to understand who Dino is. And so, Dino, thanks for coming. Mm-hmm. Dino, are you from Scranton? <laughs> no, I'm not, Joe. It's amazing. Uh, you are beloved by Scranton, people I know, our, our circle, um, our community. Okay. And I just find Scranton just adopts and beloves people because of what you've done here the last two decades that I think we'll talk about. Do you, do you feel you're a part of this area now? <laughs> I do. And uh, the interesting thing is I never felt like I wasn't from yeah. Scranton. The fact of the matter is I'd never heard of Scranton. Uh, I ended up here in a daze and uh, it's been uh, June will be 23 years. And wow. from the day I got here, Everyone I met welcomed me like I was born and raised here my whole life. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, I think that's a good attribute. You don't find in a lot of places Scranton still has. Right. So 20 years ago, before you arrived in Scranton, who was Dino? How would you describe yourself? Okay. Well, uh, I was born in Baltimore and raised in Baltimore. And uh, at a young age, I got involved in drugs, alcohol, the party scene, you know, uh, I quickly escalated into uh, what I would call an addict. Uh, it, it was almost in- instantaneous, you know. Yeah. I thought I found the solution to my problem. <laughs> and uh, from the first time I picked up a drug and uh, a beer or a shot of whiskey, uh, it kicked off an obsession that didn't go away for about, 35 years. And so, you know, I spent uh, my life uh, battling drug addiction. Uh, So, you know, I had uh, difficulty in school. I had difficulty with employment. uh, I had difficulty with finances. I had difficulty with everybody I came in contact with, including the people that loved me the most, my family, uh, until I was all alone and wandering the streets. And uh, I did that for many years, wandered the streets of Baltimore. Uh, got to a point um, where it was obvious I was going to die. And uh, I was approached by a family member. And they said they heard of a place uh, in Scranton, Pennsylvania, that maybe could help me. And I got in the back of the car and I got dropped off in Scranton. And I remember seeing the sign Wilkesbury, and, you know, uh, I had no idea where I was and everything <laughs> looked weird and strange. And you're in pretty big fucking trouble when someone says we're going to Scranton's going to help you. Yeah, Scranton's gonna help you. <laughs> so uh, I quickly realized that, I mean, there was a struggle. It, it wasn't, it wasn't easy, you know, um, but, um, I quickly realized that, uh, Scranton was needed to be my home yeah. for the immediate future. And, uh, and I made a life for myself here, which I didn't have before. What year was, was that? 2000? I arrived, uh, at Clearbrook treatment center on June 9th, 1999. I met you for right around that year after you left at San Guardi's Christmas party at their house. Yeah. I was seeing you around. So that was actually a couple like, years later. A couple years later? That's when I kind of... That's when we met, about three years later. Got comfortable knowing you and saying yeah. hi. I was young. Um, yeah. But you were always a cool guy. I'm like, who's this dude? That just, <laughs> <laughs> friendly. Yeah, oh, friendly. he had great shirts, a great button-down. <laughs> so I, I just want to unpack something because I, I do this a lot on the show. Because, you know, if someone's not familiar with well, addiction. You know, I know, excuse me one second. Yeah. You know, cause yeah. I, I mean, that was who I used to be. You said, yeah. who is Dino? That's what I used to be. Exactly. That's not what I am today. Uh, to, to stay on the prior Dino, yeah. you've been sober two decades, but right. you said something that I find everyone who comes on the show in recovery, myself included, you found the solution to your problem. And you said it was drugs and alcohol. And I think it's never clear to families what that really means. Um, so I'm curious, did you have, do you have siblings? I do. Are, 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 are they're normal? Like some, 
Uh, somewhat, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd rather t- not discuss yeah. their lives. Uh, well, yeah, not to put you on the spot. I do, and they won't. I have two sisters. They're not out addicts or alcoholics. Uh, yes. I have two other sisters, no a- addiction problems. And when when I say prior conditions, when you say I when I drank alcohol, I felt like I found a solution to something, a problem that already existed. Exactly. I, I don't think people see addiction that clearly. They only see the end result of what drugs, alcohol, especially daily use does. Well, right. It's it's really hard to describe that, I think, to someone who doesn't understand that there was a condition prior to that. It's Well, I mean, you know, we learn all this stuff in the program. Yeah. And, and and But basically, when I ingested a chemical, it uh, not only changed the way that I felt and made the world a tolerable place, but it set off uh, a craving and um, that craving caused my behavior to become compulsive. Yeah. And then as a result of my compulsive behavior, my life became extremely unmanageable because I spent 90% of my waking moments chasing more drugs, more alcohol, more money, where to get it, who has it. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. And it's a consummate exercise in futility. What did you feel was wrong with you before you could articulate what addiction was? Like what was going on in your head? Was it just living in a nightmare? I had, uh, I had no idea that any of this was going on until I got better. Yeah. Uh, and, and understood it. Um, but, uh, basically, you know, I was a kid that suffered with, uh, uh, depression. Yeah. A lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, the world was kind of, uh, not a safe place. Yeah. Um, I uh, had learning disabilities. Yeah. Couldn't read. So I never did any homework or anything like that. You know, now, uh, I'm not a spring chicken. I'll be 63 years old. So, you know, we're That's going nuts. back, we're going back in the in the, uh, in the sixties. And, uh, so a lot of this stuff went undiagnosed. My parents had no idea what was wrong with me. Yeah. And, uh, and so I wasn't able to, um, uh, study, wasn't able to take tests and ADHD, what you would describe today. I I had severe ADHD and, and I had difficulty reading. Everything gets jumbled up. And confuses the hell out of me. So, you know, uh, plus the depression, plus the anxiety. And the world was just a very, very uncomfortable place. It, yeah. was, a, it was a struggle to be me. And uh, as a result of all of that, I had tremendous low self-esteem. I felt like I was stupid. I felt like everybody else was better than me. Or, you know, the world yeah. looked like I would look at other people and I and I would say to myself, like, why is life so easy for them and so difficult for me? Just to get up in the morning was a chore. Yeah. And uh, at a young age, I found older kids in the neighborhood that were smoking pot. And uh, we um, would get the older guys to buy us a bottle of whiskey and we would pass it around and sip the whiskey and smoke hash and pot and all that stuff. And uh, uh, I was instantly addicted. Yeah, I was instantly addicted. So to answer your question, uh, the drugs and alcohol were a symptom of a more pervasive illness. Yeah. Depression, yeah. anxiety, low self-esteem, 
I think it's being articulated uh, better. I, I mean, I, my relapse was brutal, but to really focus on that again and talk about it intelligently, I, I don't remember kind of picking up on it. Like my ADHD, anxiety, just prior to drinking. Like I, I'm having new memory, not new memories, but of growing up and thinking, oh, that that's addiction. That's where it started. And then it becomes clearer as yeah. time in recovery goes on. The longer I stay sober, the better I understand yeah. what was happening to me. Yeah, it's it's profound to to hear it. I hear it in a new light. It's, maybe I was just numb to hearing the same words and growing up young today. But when I hear you talk like that, I'm like, that's it. That's the pattern. I read Bill's story out of the the, the Alcoholics Anonymous now. I'm like, this is a story about anxiety, PTSD, abandoned by his grandparents. Like, that's the real story. Trauma. Trauma. Yeah. You know, adoption, you know, I, I wasn't me, but, uh, you know. But you can see, see the story. Parents Bill's- get divorced. I mean, you know, there's a million reasons, real or perceived. Yeah. You know, like the fact of the matter is I had really good parents that loved me. Yeah. You know, I couldn't feel it. Yeah. I couldn't feel it. It's wild. No. Right. <clears throat> yeah. No, I, I I understand that completely. So, so- I, I was I was basically one of these kids that needed to be in treatment at 13 years old. Yeah. Uh, back then, I didn't know about treatment. My parents didn't know about treatment. Uh, I didn't. Ha- I'd never heard of AA or anything like that till I was 26 years old. Uh, and by that time, I had already been using for 15 years. Yeah. And uh, the train was just going too fast uh, down that. <laughs> Right, you're cynical by then. You're you're beat up in a lot of pain. There's no way you're gonna that that message doesn't come in easily. It does not. No, No. and the denial was there, and you know. So, stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Joe Van Wee. I'm the host of All Better, but I'm also the CEO of Fellowship House. At Fellowship House, we believe long term recovery requires a personality change as well as a clinical intervention. These ideas can take several months to achieve. Our philosophy is to provide a safe, therapeutic, and exceedingly active environment for patients to achieve these personality changes and find joy in the fellowship of recovery, which will allow for long-term sobriety. We believe that recovery extends beyond treatment and peer-to-peer communities into real life. In Fellowship House, we provide a design for living that focuses on education and service. We have strong relationships with the 12 universities and vocational schools in the area and ensure that our fellows pursue their personal goals while entering sobriety. We also stress independence and responsibility, making sure each individual is financially solid and self and helping to make their community a better place. As a treatment center, Fellowship House offers both residential and outpatient treatment services to individuals and families affected by addiction and alcoholism. We're a DDAP licensed provider of general outpatient, intensive outpatient, and partial hospitalization programming, as well as a level of care assessments. If you want to find out more information about Fellowship House, please visit fellowshiphouses.com. 
so you get to Scranton. Um, what was so profound that kept you here? Like, what did your recovery begin like? How did you make that turn from st- being stable, not using for a little while to like, this is a whole new life. I'm going to stay here. Uh, so I was here. I went through a program. I relapsed. Uh, went back to that program, relapsed. And the one smart thing that I did was I knew I needed to keep a, keep a safe place. Yeah. Like when I relapsed, I would go back to Baltimore. Yeah. And, uh, and then I would like live in a car for three months and get arrested. And then I came back and I did that a second time. And, uh, the one smart thing that I did was I didn't contaminate this area. I didn't start buying drugs, using drugs. I didn't do any of that stuff in Scranton. That's brilliant. You wanted to live. Uh, uh, some, yeah, <laughs> yeah the part. Yeah, I knew that like this shit had to stop. Yeah. And, uh, and so I think that I was just so addicted for so long. It took me like two and a half years to stop that train. And, uh, and so what kept me here as easy answer, love, wow, love, love, kindness, real kindness where people, I could tell that people in the recovery community genuinely cared about my well-being yeah and i responded to that um uh, not that that wasn't going on in other places yeah i either wasn't ready yet or it wasn't going on there like it was here i met the right people at the right time and uh recovery became attractive to me i found some people that i wanted to be like that i believed were you know like as bad as me or, 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 or suffered from the same thing I was suffering from. And I wanted to, to be part of that. Yeah. Uh, just like I wanted to be part of the drug culture. I wanted to be part of the recovery culture, but it was basically the love and kindness of the people in Scranton that I responded to. Well, that's pretty clear. <laughs> it's, you and I met, we yeah. were instantly friends. Yeah. I don't know what it is about the people in Scranton. They're just, it's, you know, I've met some of the craziest people I've ever met in my life here. Yeah, absolutely. But, but everybody, even those people are kind. Do you, you, ever, you ever meet Chris Barnes? Yes. He's local. Chris always said uh, to me, I, I would do his improv class. Great guy. He would say, Joe, in L.A., people are always trying to figure out who they're going to be or who you want them to be. He goes, it's great when you're from Scranton and you move there. You're going around telling people who you are. Right. (laughs) He's a funny guy. Yeah. He's a good dude. Um, yeah, it's flattering. I I think it's the same. And I think I've seen it as an adult in in the last two years and I just reconnected to it. I'm like, what, how have I been blind to this? There's, there's good people here. Um, recovery community is pretty distinct here. Uh, unlike other people, what I see people going back to in Jersey or Connecticut, it's a little colder. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't, <laughs> don't, don't want to knock comp- anybody. Me neither, I don't but put I'm just, anybody down. I'm just speaking off the cuff. But I, I mean, there's good, and I've met people all over the country in recovery, and yeah. I meet good people everywhere. Um, I was at the right place at the right time around the right people for me. Yeah, and I mean, I remember saying to my first sponsor, uh, "AA is is different here." Yeah. And he said to me, no, AA is not different. You're different. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, you know, there's, and there's so truth to that. Yeah. 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 But you know, nobody judged me. You know, I, I, 
I, I, I grew up always feeling like I was being judged and, I, and, yeah. and especially like my family, I always felt like they thought I was behaving this way on purpose, like intentionally yeah. ruining my life and making them miserable. Like I was doing it on purpose and I wasn't doing it on purpose. I couldn't help myself. Nope. And, uh, and so when I got here to Scranton, nobody ever said to me, why are you doing that? You know, you got so much going for you. What are you doing <laughs> that for? What happened? Nobody said any of those things to me. They just said, we love you. Keep coming back. Yeah. And, and <laughs> that's what I needed to hear. That's what I responded to. I remember somebody came up to me, a guy that we both know. And, uh, I, I, I he was a well-respected guy in the recovery community and he, he, I was like still feeling horrible about myself and pulled me aside. And he said, you know, you have a really good spirit. He says, you're going to help a lot of people. You're, you have a really good spirit about you. Oh. And nobody ever said that to me. Yeah. You know? And I thought, wow, maybe I do have something to contribute to this world. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but maybe I do. You know, if, if why would he say that? Like, I, I like, I believed him. Yeah. I believed him. Yeah. You know, he said it in a way that I believed him. And why did he take time out of his day to say that to me? Were you, and you were in early sobriety? I was in early sobriety. Yeah. And hearing stuff like that, did it kind of just wake up a sense of purpose you wanted to find? Yes, exactly. How did that? It, ha- it allowed me to feel, you know how we, we say, Joe, uh, uh, we don't get AA, AA gets us. Yeah. You know, uh, that's what happened to me. Yeah. You know, it was just slowly starting to get me. I was starting to uh, make real genuine friends, you know, and and I could feel that people actually cared about my well-being and and my sobriety. You know, it's powerful. And 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 I say A-A-A-A-A-A. Well, the reason I say A-A is because that's where I found this was sure you know, yeah. going to where that AA stuff was. I remember uh, uh, I was going to a psychologist in Baltimore for years, smart guy. And he said to me, he said, you need to get spiritual. And I said, what is that? And he said, I don't know, but that's what they do in AA. <laughs> well, what a nice guy. I don't know, but you should go to AA. And come to find out, uh, well, he had a nephew that got sober at Serenity Lodge. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And he said, he said, uh, he said, my nephew's sober two years. He said, um, he, uh, he went to this place called Serenity Lodge. Yeah. And he said, maybe if you go there, it'll help you. And that's how I ended up here. And you were, went through Serenity Lodge. Exactly. After Clearbrook. So Serenity Lodge, it's up in uh, Lenoxville. Is it? Was that the exactly? Kind of, I used to drive up there in college. It was Frank then, right? He's exactly. Vietnam, but yeah, he's a wildcat. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But it was great. A lot of my friends were in there and we would sit up in that attic. It wasn't the same building at all, but. Uh, right. And I saw a community there. There was a spirit in that building of people just taking care of each other and, and just the, he was a wild pied piper. Like, yeah. <laughs> So Frank was there then? Was it there? Yes. Uh, Frank owned Serenity Lodge yeah. uh, along with his wife, Angela. Okay. And uh, he had started it. 
And I guess it was in operation about five years. Five years. I felt like it was so long. Like I didn't know. How, I don't know the history. At That's that why time. I want to talk to you about it. Yeah. At that time, uh, I think he opened in 94. Uh, and uh, uh, I arrived in 99, June 14th, 1990. You know, I can't remember what I had for breakfast, but I can remember yeah. certain dates. And I remember first time I saw his face. And he had this big smile and uh, there was something about him that yeah. was attractive. Yeah. And uh, I fell in love with him right away and uh, we became really good friends. And that's, uh, that's how, that was the beginning of my Is journey. he still around? Is he? Frank lives in North Carolina. In North Carolina. Yeah, he's still alive. He's still, you know, thriving. Yeah, he's and, a nice uh, man. Nice man. He's, spent, he's close to his family now. Oh, that's great. Yeah. His kids. So you go through there, you're sober a while, an opportunity arises, and you take Serenity Lodge. How long ago was that? So I was, uh, I was broken and lost, and I uh, had gotten arrested in Baltimore, you know, one of my, my second relapse. Yeah. Uh, I managed to get uh, 20 bucks or 30 bucks for a bus ticket. I, I called Frank and I said, Frank, I said, uh, can I come back? Yeah. And he said, why? What's different? What's going to be different? You've already been here twice. Wow. And I said, I don't know, but I can't live this way anymore. I yeah. can't, I can't do this anymore. And he, uh, he said, well, if you can get a bus ticket back here, I'll buy, I'll pick you up at the bus station. And that's wow. what happened. And that was my first day of sobriety, uh, March 23rd, 2002. Wow. That's my sobriety date. So yeah. I, uh, you know, of course, uh, I did what I had to do to get money yeah. for a bus ticket. Sure. Got on a bus downtown Baltimore and came here to the bus station. It's the old bus station in Scranton. And uh, they, uh, this, this uh, fella, Danny, who was working at the lodge at the time, picked me up, brought me up there. And that was uh, the beginning of my sobriety. Uh, I had about six months sober and I had resigned myself to uh, staying in Scranton. And at that point, I didn't care where I was or what I was doing or what I had. All I wanted to do was be sober. Yeah. That's all I cared about. And uh, I'm, I was able to meet some other people in the area that worked in the treatment field. And, uh, and they gave me an opportunity to do some work with families and stuff like that. Yeah. And I realized like, wow, I like doing this. And I could tell that people kind of listened to me like, yeah. like, like they respected where I had come from and my experience. And, and so it's your cadence too, your Baltimore it? cadence. I, I love listening to you. As you were, it, it was, it was different than the Scranton field, the way you would pronunciate and cadence things. I was waiting where the story ended. I would go down to oh, yeah. aftercare well, with my mom. Okay. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because <laughs> people would say, where are you from? Mississippi. <laughs> And, uh, and uh, of course, I can't hear what I sound like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, they thought I was from the deep south. Um, 
But I do know that uh, we do have a distinct accent, I guess. Baltimoreans. Yeah. So, so uh, I realized that I liked working with people. And, uh, and I started to work with people. I got involved uh, with uh, some local people that you know. And I was working with family education program yeah. and, and facilitating groups um, with families and, and people in, in recovery. And um, you just at, knew at, well, uh, what happened was uh, Frank and I, we got an apartment together. Yeah. He got divorced and uh, he said, well, uh, you know, I just got divorced. I don't know what I want to do. He said, why don't we get an apartment? You, you, you're looking for an apartment. He said, you want to get an apartment? I said, I said, sure. So we go over to summit point. We got a two bedroom yeah. apartment and I, he and I lived together for a year. And during that period of time, he said to me, I want to be closer to my kids. I didn't raise them. Uh, I'm having grandkids. And I, I want to be closer to my kids. They live in North Carolina. And why don't you, he says, I, I, you know, I've had it. I want to make a change. Why don't you take over the lodge? That's wild. That's awesome. And uh, so it was literally that simple. Um, I mean, of course, you know, we put a financial yeah. package together and, and we took care of the business piece and sure. all of that. But, uh, but I, I took it over. And, um, you know, I went and got some education and I got a lot of on the job training and, and I had a lot of really good, uh, people help me. And, uh, I had a lot of experience. I had been to a lot of treatment centers Yeah, and I was around a lot of really, really good therapists and counselors. And, you know, when I decided to get sober, all of that education that I had for 16 years attempting to get sober, it all came flooding in. Oh, no doubt. And I was able to put it to use to help somebody else. And, and, uh, it was, you know, I, I, I consider myself to be the luckiest guy in the world. Uh, you don't really get to live the way I lived for 42 years and end up where I've ended up. Yeah. And, and the biggest thing that I've got now, this whole thing, Joe, is a sense of being exactly where I'm supposed to be wherever I am. Well, I'll put it this way. When I was, when I was, I spent my whole life feeling like I was supposed to be doing something. Yeah. I didn't know what it was supposed to be. And I felt like I was supposed to be with somebody, but I didn't know who it was. Like whoever I was with, I wanted to be with somebody else. Yeah. And wherever I was, I wanted to be somewhere else. I never had my mind and my body in the same room at the same time. Yeah. Right. What recovery is giving me is wherever I am is exactly where I I'm supposed to be. Some people call that enlightenment. And we're, we're, <laughs> whatever simple. I'm doing is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And whoever I'm with is exactly who I'm supposed to be. There is no place I'd rather be than right here with you right now. And if you don't feel that way, you think something's wrong. Do you think? I think that that's peace. Yeah. I, I never knew that for one second in my life Yeah. until I got sober and the obsession lifted. Wow. That obsession that I, that I experienced the first time I used. Yeah. That didn't go away for a couple of years into my recovery. Yeah. You know, 
It's an interest, you know, it's funny. I, I tell people all the time, the reason I have the amount of time that I have in sobriety, it's not because I didn't want to use all of a sudden one day. Yeah. You know, I mean, I didn't stop eating Big Macs because Big Macs stopped tasting good. <laughs> I stopped eating Big Macs because I don't want open heart surgery. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I, I stopped drinking and drugging in spite of wanting to drink and drug all the time. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, uh, after, after a long period of time, the obsession finally lifted. How did you notice that? Was it like, just like, just an awareness came up over you that you're like, I don't think I've had an obsession. I don't, I've had an obsession recently. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I noticed what I noticed was that the obsessions were less frequent and less intense as time went on, not that they didn't all of a sudden just stop one day. And you're going to meetings at this point and you have a new community around you and they just, that's surrounding you the whole time. Or is that not true? (laughs) Uh, You want my formula? No, you want, you want my, I try to see patterns. Like what's the pattern outside of just sounding like a fundamentalist? What, what, what happens? What precedes these things going away? Because it's, it's neurological, like it's carved into the brain at this point. What either thought has to proceed. I had to retrain my brain to yeah. think differently. Um, it, yeah, it, it's all, and, and, and it's in the behavior, you know, I, yeah. I mean, I, I believe that all the cliches that we hear are true. Yeah. Uh, I had to act my way into a new way of thinking. And uh, so what did I do? Uh, for two years, I didn't go anywhere or do anything. I didn't associate with anyone that used or drank even socially. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Including family members. Smart. Uh, I went to anywhere between 12 to 14 meetings a week for five years. There were a lot of days where I went to four AA meetings. Yeah. A lot of days. Uh, especially around celebration time. You know how we make a big deal of celebrations yeah. around here. Other areas don't make as big a deal as we do. Uh, but we, we make a big deal out of people's anniversary dates and yeah. celebrating them. And, uh, and, and everybody comes together. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful experience to, to just, I like it. I, I like love the it. ritual. That, I'm a part of something. I'm a part of something. I feel the love and yeah. I, I can see the transformation, especially when, when families, like when somebody has a year and their families come and maybe their mom will give a kid a coin and, yeah. and you can, I mean, they're crying. I mean, it's just, there's pizza. There's pizza. There's <laughs> gotta have the pizza. But, but uh, I went to, you know, I, like I said, sometimes four meetings in a day. I mean, I, the only people I knew were people in recovery. Yeah. And, uh, and then I ventured out into Al-Anon and, and, uh, I met a lot of nice people in Al-Anon. So all of my friends were either in AA or Al-Anon. Yeah. And I got to tell you, you know, the funny thing is, is the only thing, I mean, I was living basically like a cockroach. Okay. And, uh, the only thing I could think of worse than that when I was in active addiction was hanging around those losers in AA. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's crazy. Like I, I would go to an A meeting and look at the people and say, what is wrong with these people? They're strange. Look yeah. how strange they are. Now I immediately go back to my drug addicted homeless <laughs> friends, you know, like 
people with clean clothes. You wouldn't believe the weirdos I was just with. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I I hung with people that had no keys. Yeah. You know, no keys, no keys. That's a distinction. I I remember, I remember Frank at at the, uh, from the lodge. He, I remember him saying, this is what sobriety gives you. And he would, he would uh, jingle his uh, keychain. Yeah. You know, and he had like 40 (laughs) keys on there. I guess he worked in a jail or something part time. But, uh, so, um, I lost my train of thought. Where was I? Um, we were piloted around just the distinction of what you did to prior to the obsession leaving is like you act it your way. And I think that is the premise of AA, unlike like say a religion, you have I, to believe something, you act it your way into a spiritual awakening. Your, your life changed. Yes. And, and, uh, I know what I was saying. I was talking about, you know, I thought people in AA were losers. And now I'm one of those guys that the kids look at and say, look at that. Coffee old man. Man. Look at that loser over there. Uh, yeah. I transformed my life. You know, I, I like figured out what was important in life and it wasn't what I thought it was. Like yeah. I didn't realize that relationships were important. I didn't realize being of service to others is important. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I didn't realize uh, that love and being loved, you know, that's what the number one repercussion of substance use disorder is it robs us of the ability to love and be loved, that which makes us human. It robs us of that ability. You know, all relationships begin with ourselves. And if I can't like myself or love myself, it's very difficult for me to love someone else. And so I was going through life functioning for the good of myself without thinking of others. Yeah. What is sobriety? Sobriety to me is about functioning for the good of others without thinking of self. Yeah. And if I try to not think about myself at all, I think enough about myself. You know how, like, <laughs> you know how, you know how, if you try to cut all the carbs out of your diet, yeah. you'll still eat enough carbs. Yeah. Yeah, you do. You'll still eat enough, you know? And so even though I don't try not to think about myself, I still think about myself too much. Yeah. Uh, so you can imagine how pathetic I was when I didn't try to think about. I've some of- <laughs> I've had a while, like the last two years, I, I started meditating a little at some of the exercises of what you're talking about. Right. I can't not think of myself, but I'm starting to see it like from a, it's a different version of self, an observer. And I just let things pass. Does it just because I'm thinking it doesn't mean I cho- chose the thought. Right. And I don't have to hold it. No. I want to be a part of what's in front of me. Like you were saying, the presence. I've never felt it this way in the last two years that, that it was like, wow, I've, I've totally missed a whole realm of life. Exactly. There's a veil over my eyes. It's exactly. crazy. And here's a thought. Here's a thought. You know, I used to think, and tell me, maybe you felt this way too, that I would be having these strong obsessions. And I thought the only way to get rid of them was to go use drugs. Yeah. I didn't know that you could have a thought and not act on it. It could pass. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, the, the the app I use for meditation, Sam Harris, one of the first exercises, when you're angry, imagine holding that now for a week, that just state of rage. It's impossible. Right. And that's the same state of an obsession. I could not even let the idea come in that I wasn't going to drive over and get cocaine. It made me sick to think, I can't do that today. I definitely want to quit. 
And then when I got separated, just 30 days and I would get those urges, I, I just got used to, I'd call people. Right. And I was anxious and it would take 10 minutes of the conversation before I told them I had an obsession. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. <laughs> like, like the so let me ask you a question. Uh, how many times did you swear yeah. the night before that tomorrow morning I'm not going to use anymore? This is my last I, I can't even count. And you used anyway. Yeah. It was going on for years. Too. I would blink. I left Marworth. I'm like, I'm going to settle this after a relapse. I would blink and I would start smoking pot again, like a daily heavy pot smoking, thinking this is fine. Just go to meetings. This will help for the first year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I mean, imagine it was crazy. It was (laughs) for those who aren't, have never experienced the obsession and the compulsion. And uh, imagine drinking or drugging against your will every day. It's a like swearing, you know, I would swear to myself, I'm going to eat this morning and, and I would take the $10 and buy a bag of heroin and not eat. I would cry. I'd be in a parking lot crying in front of a liquor store, watching people go out, waiting for me to go in alone. Cause I still thought there's could be a group that still thinks I'm sober. I don't want, I don't want to ruin their day. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We're crying, waiting for my Coke dealer to call me back. If he doesn't text back, uh, like it was just like. None of it I wanted to happen, but I had to get it. it today was a wash. It's not going to happen today. I'll reset tomorrow or three-day benefit. That was exactly how I thought. Yeah. But they got, I got to be honest, at the end, uh, not to speak to some idea of some natural harm reduction was happening. My addiction was wildly out of control. I blinked, and after more where three years went by, and I was still doing the same thing and losing more and more and more. I would think um, the intervals got less i could get a week two weeks and then i would relapse and then it'd be three days and then i would call someone so they were getting spaces in between and the relapses were far emotionally more tormentive like what am i going to do are you gonna are you gonna do this are you gonna kill yourself mm-hmm. or are you gonna get sober like because you i i can't go through life like i'm gonna die i'm gonna kill myself yeah the torment uh you know <clears throat> we find that uh, people that go through treatment, go through extended care or, or, or sober living and get a little bit of clean time and they're doing the work in the program and they relapse. We find that every time they relapse, the relapses get a little bit shorter and they come back to the program. Yeah. You know, now are they worse? Is it a, a, a bigger failure? Do we beat ourselves up more? Yeah, probably. Yeah. You know, I, I can tell you, I never got, uh, since I've been sober, I haven't relapsed. Yeah. Now I had some clean time for a few months in a, in a living in a bubble, yep. but I, I, I didn't experience anything that would resemble sobriety. Yeah. I, I, I just didn't have the opportunity to, I was removed from the it opportunity. It takes work to have a relapse from where you're at. <laughs> like say it would take, uh, it would take years of work, like denying and ignoring parts of reality. So, you know, it's funny, but it's funny. People ask me all the time, like, what is surrender? What is, you know, and, and I think that it's this thought. It's not going to be different this time. Yeah. Because I used to tell myself that I'm going to be able to use and control it and manage my life and accomplish whatever dreams I had 
which weren't much. Uh, And, or or I was going to, you know, be reasonably happy or I was going to, you know, be able to pay my bills. And, and so I remember um, realizing that not only how much work it is to, to be a drug addict, because it's way harder to be a drug addict than it is to get a job and work 80 hours a week. Yeah. Um, But I remember the thought that it's not going to be different this time. Stop lying to yourself. And so I, I, as I, 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 that was my surrender. It's truth evading your brain. You can't have the delusion or an illusion anymore. Right. Yeah. That's surrender. That's surrender. You no more denial. You know, I I have a head full of, I called you one afternoon. Um, I had 30 days. I just did a detox this before I got sober. My sister was sick and I'm, I'm like, this is my moral obligation to not get a phone call. She was in Philly getting cancer treatments and be drunk. Like, what if I have to go down to Philly? Mm Mm-hmm. And when I drink, it could be three days of just drinking. Right. And I, w- I got 30 days together, went to a detox. I was calling you a lot. And I called you. I'm sitting in my office. No employees left. Right. <laughs> like, just a, showing pretending, up. To- pretending you still had a business. <laughs> I'm a businessman. Uh, uh, I better put a jacket on today in case someone comes in here. Um, I called you and we talked, I, I distinctly remember a half hour about surrender and I didn't feel it yet, but I'm like, if I could stay sober long enough, maybe I'll experience it. I got sick right after that holidays. It was around Thanksgiving. Yes. I remember. I went into a coma. When I came up, I, I was too spun out. Like I ended up relapsing after that. But uh, I remember having that conversation. You're like, you, when you're done, you're done. That's it. No matter how you feel, keep going. And I'm like, I, I was getting a momentum waking right. up in me. And it woke back up a year later. I get, I get sober and stabilized. But I remember talking to you a lot because um, I was at Clearbrook the year before that. And you'd come up and speak. And I, I, I could relate to you in a way I never could before because now I'm in my 40s. And you got sober in your 40s. And, I, and you didn't humiliate. I didn't feel humiliated around you. Like, like after relapsing and you could see I was falling apart. Couldn't bullshit you and say, well, it's just a right. slip up. I was in a crisis. <laughs> so right. I always had that comfort and I, I could see what the years of recovery did. And I was like, I, it just, I started noticing it. it was flooding my consciousness. Like, oh my God, that's recovery. What Dino's doing up there. I couldn't go up there and speak that way sober. I was so far removed from sobriety then. Right. Before, so it was good. It was, it was a, it was a brightness shining into my head. I, I, I wanted you to know that I could yeah. hear what you were saying. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I, I wanted to touch on a uh, serenity lodge after you took it over. Um, a lot of my friends, I, I count uh, probably 50 guys. I, if I could sit here, I can name 50 guys that I became friends with that ended up staying in this area that were from different parts of the Eastern seaboard, long Island. Bucks County, Philadelphia, Connecticut, um, New York, a lot of New Yorkers, Baltimore. They get the chance to go to transitional living. That's what you are. And in that, that's where things really could change for someone. They went through their fourth step. They could write down this inventory. These guys, it was like the reverse brain drain. They moved to Scranton and a, a portion of them were entrepreneurial. Sneaker mm-hmm. shops, barber shops. Uh, Pat has a remax of uh, reality mm-hmm, uh, lawyer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
I've never seen that written anywhere in any degree here, but you've supplied entrepreneurs through the act of recovery to our area for two decades. Uh, you know, what happens is, <laughs> you know, what happens is sobriety gives us an opportunity to play the game of life. Yeah. And you get out of life what you're willing to work for and put your effort into. And when you're not drinking and you're not drugging, you know, we, we become very productive people. And not only are we productive, but we are understanding, compassionate, kind, considerate. Uh, we believe in service. I mean, what is, what is business? Everybody's has, you know, you can't name a business that somebody doesn't have the same business down the street. So what is it all about? It's about service work. Yeah. Right. Uh, um, so, I mean, and I could give you a million examples. I'm not going to get into it, but, but, um, you know, to me, that's the magic ingredient in anything that you do in life is the passion you bring to it and the service that you're, uh, giving to your customers. Do you, do you ever get overwhelmed? Do you ever just sit? I mean, not to be vain, I'm not saying washed in achievement. You ever think of how many people you have met? Like how, how many beds? You have forty beds. Or 50, oh, we got a production. Sorry about that. Folks. Yeah, don't sweat it. <clears throat> but I'm thinking that's it's prolific. How many lives have changed? And you were you were there to see them, and meet them. Like, what, do you ever just get overwhelmed? Is we're talking thousands of people? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I gotta tell you, no. <laughs> I don't. I love it. I, I love don't. It. I don't I even don't. notice. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy for everybody. That's the plan. <clears throat> That's the ideal yeah. situation. That's what I'm hoping will happen. Uh, you know, and, and I, I think that the biggest thing that I can do for anybody is just be an example. Um, <clears throat> offer a kind word. I think that I've been gifted through my life experience to with regards to substance use disorder, not be judgmental. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I, I never judge. I may in other areas, but not when it comes to addiction sure. or relapse or anything yeah. like that, or people's character defects. You no. know, we don't, you know, I mean, have you ever heard somebody try to pronounce the word anonymity? Yeah. Yeah, we don't laugh at them, do we? Yeah, no, <laughs> no. And we're not judging anybody. You can say it any any way you want. No. You're welcome here. So, so everyone's welcome, and uh, and we don't care what religion you are, what color you no. are, what your gender, or what 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 your, you know. I, I was <laughs> trying to make bones that I was an atheist when I was coming back, and you said, Joe, I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> Just work the steps, uh, yeah. will you? <laughs> Just stop drinking. Um, so. I, but you know, I, the, the same opportunity is there for any, everyone. If you get the drugs and the alcohol out of your life, yeah. what you're going to, what happens is the good stuff in our, my baseline personality is the same by getting sober and getting rid of some of my character defects that were diminishing some others. Uh, I was able to get rid of the bad stuff so that the good stuff could get better yeah. so that I could be useful. And what the way I see it is that uh, I am grateful that I was available when that person over there 
needed help or was yeah. ready to make a change in their life, that I'm available to encourage them, to walk side by side with them through that experience. And as I said, some people are a three-month project. Some people are a one-year project. Yeah. Some people are a five-year project. This isn't, you know, this yeah. this is not an easy deal. You cannot you cannot work in this field if you're easily discouraged. Yeah. You know, and, well, and it can also be the most rewarding work that anyone will ever do. This is the second sentence. I, I'm sorry. I just want to refer to it in your body. Dino sees beyond behaviors that keeps residents stuck. I don't know. Like, that's just not noise to me. I know exactly what you're saying because I see you do it. Burnout rates quick, especially in 30 day treatment. Like that line means a lot to me because you're not looking at, you're not sensitive. You've done the work. You're, you've recovered. You're not offended by someone who's ill. No. Like you're waiting to, how can I bring some more awareness to them? Would that be kind of how you would describe a goal? How, how do you make someone aware of their own bad behavior? I think you tell them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think in a loving way, you, 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 you tell them. They, every, yeah. Listen, uh, if I can help somebody see themselves in reality and they are repulsed by their behavior, yeah. and then maybe they'll change. And th that's a lot. That's what's happening in, in the transitional living. Are you, you're kind of pointing out. I am uh, the stuff that lingers of addiction. That's behavior. The advantage of having someone live with you for three months, mm -hmm. eight, uh, uh, four months, six months, a year, you get to observe their behaviors, their conversation. Uh, I'll give you an example. I have a kid that has had a bit of a tough life. He had horrible upbringing. He was adopted, but uh, at a later age, like seven yeah. or eight years old. And um, he's got a habit. He's, he's uh, 16 years old now, but he's got a habit. If, if somebody says something he doesn't like his automatic reply is shut up. I'm going to punch you in the face. Yeah. Now he's not going to punch anybody in the face. Sure. He doesn't really mean it, but that's what he does. So, you know, I've known him for a while and I see every time somebody tells him, you know, why don't you, you know, sweep the kitchen floor, shut up. I'll punch you in the face. <laughs> so I had to bring him in. I don't say anything. Yeah. I bring him, I have to bring him in my office. I sit him down. I say, listen, you know, there's, there's some things that you need to change about your personality. I said, I said, all this is, is a habit that you've developed since you were a little kid to protect yourself. Yeah. Shut up. I'll punch you in the face. I said, you know how many times a day you say that? You know, if you punch somebody in the face, every time you say you're going to punch somebody in the face, you'd be in jail. <laughs> so, you know, let's see what he does. But yeah, I mean, we observe and, and, and I'm just trying to make people better. Yeah. Function better in society, you know, but you know, it's something it's you, uh, you gave me a, a, a second to think about something you mentioned about all the successful people and there's a lot of them. Yeah. You know, I, it's, I think more about the people that we've lost yeah. than the people that are successful. And maybe I shouldn't do that. What, why do you I think should... that is? Do you think it's to keep yourself on guard? I think that uh, everybody um, holds a, ple a piece of my heart. Yeah. And when I see somebody die from this disease, 
they take that little piece with them. Yeah. And, uh, and there's been, I don't know how many, a yeah. hundred, you know, uh, uh, you know, 19 year old kids, yeah, 17 year old kids, 16 year old kids and older. Uh, but we've buried a lot, a lot of people. Yeah. You know that. And, yeah. and, uh, and, and I probably think more about those people than I do the ones that have the real estate business yeah. or, you know, the, the sneaker shop or the barber shop or whatever. I think it's natural. I think especially people like us are from trauma, depression, good or bad. I'm just saying I, I, I see those things first because they move me quicker. Um, it's hard to see success translate. It just becomes normal background. Yeah. Um, you know, I kind of expect people to do well, I guess. Like That's a good know, expectation, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I expect people to get sober, too. I, yeah. I'm not... Uh, naive, I realize that the vast majority are not, at least not right, you know, today. And like maybe you know next what? year. But I, I, that might be the answer. You you just said it. You expect people to to do better or recover. That means you're vulnerable. You're So you're taking a risk to be disappointed and hurt if someone meets tragedy. Mm-hmm. That's the end. That's what you... Well, that, that, I, would you say that would be descriptive? No, no. I, I uh, you know, these are really good questions and things I don't really think about that much in, in this way. So I, well, you're caring about people, and if you if you care about someone, and that's that's what I I, I don't think I, I see a lot in thirty day treatment centers. Sometimes it doesn't happen because it's burnout. You got 30 days to, you get to know someone for a year. And if something horrible happens to them because of addiction, it's gotta be, it's painful. It's painful. Uh, you know, when I, I, at one point, uh, before I remodeled, I had a sign on my door. It said, it said, expect, we expect miracles. Yeah. And, uh, and I do, I expect that people are going to listen to what I have to say and they're going to respond to it. And they're going to make the adjustments they need to make in their life. Uh, I'm not naive. So I also understand that some people aren't ready yet to make those adjustments. My job is to not tell them what to do, but to lead them in a way so that they can make that decision for themselves. Addicts don't make healthy decisions for no. they ba- they make all their decisions based on how they feel, yeah. not doing the next right thing or not thinking about their future or tomorrow or consequences. You know, they live for the moment, not in the moment. Yeah. And so they can't think one second be- beyond right now. So they're always doing what feels good. And that's a world of difference living in the moment. I mean, right. So, so, so my, you know, I used to do lectures at treatment centers, right. And I would see, I was a patient in some of them. Yes. And there'd be 70 people there and I'd be talking about recovery and I can see four people interested in what I'm saying and 68 people that they just have a blank look on their face or could care less. I mean, that's what, it looks, sleep. That's what it looks like. So I realized like, what is my responsibility? My responsibility is to tell the truth as I see it. And 
I am powerless over what they do with that information. So I don't take anything personally. Yeah. If, if, if I, it's cause you're healthy. If I say to somebody, you should stop drinking and they say, or if I say, did you ever think about maybe not drinking or doing drugs and, and maybe getting some help? If they tell me to go screw myself, I don't take that personally. You know, my responsibility is to point out to them that drugs and alcohol are ruining their life. What they do with that is up to them. Mm-hmm. I can't, I mean, anyone that believes that, that people, you can tell people what to do and they're just going to do it. <laughs> it's it, called fascism. They're going to, they're going to be <laughs> extremely called... exasperated and frustrated. Yeah. It's, it, it's called autocracy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Coercion doesn't work. It, it could help a scenario. I think arise uh, if someone's really trained at it, say it's like a really good interventionist, but it, it, it rarely works. It, sometimes it causes more harm. I think to, to an addict, just misperceiving that there's a conspiracy against him. And yes. You, now I also agree with forcing someone. So do I to go into treatment. So yeah, I. I mean, they need to ex- have that experience. Yeah. So, I, I think they're beyond they their liberties. It. They're harmed to themselves and they can't see it, especially if all the loved ones and everyone in your life could see your, your risk to yourself and your life and your livelihood. Um, coercion's needed like a, an organized and coercion maybe sounds like an edgy word, but an intervention has to happen. Right. It's better than what fate tragedy. You ignore it. So that's insane. I've changed my mind about how I feel about interventions. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that, People, if you're in active addiction, you aren't capable of making that decision yeah. for yourself. So <laughs> there's the no healthier, easy day to get sober. <laughs> no, it, it, right now is the best day to get sober, mm-hmm. right this second. Uh, so, you know, people that love you, if they love you and they care about you, I think that they should step in, intervene, and uh, use whatever they need to to get someone into treatment so they can have that experience because if they don't ever have the experience, they don't know what it is they're supposed to be responding to. Yeah. So <clears throat> there's been in, in recent, um, I was kind of wanted to describe you take adolescence. Is that's kind of a recent change or. Uh, no, um, yeah. we're, we, we, we take all ages, all ages. Yeah. Yeah. We are yeah. a sober living community and uh, you know, we'll help anybody that, that needs help. How would you describe the property? Cause I'm, I'm familiar with it, but how would yeah. you describe it? Well, we're on 10 acres of property. I mean, we have a gym, a basketball court, um, you know, TV rooms. Uh, we plan activities it's for beautiful. the guys. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's a serene it's magical. place. It's there's, a magical place. There's a Creek in the back and the guys, a lot of them like to fish. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're close to uh, this time of year, we're close to Elk Mountain. So the guys, a lot of them like to snowboard. Do families ever reach out to you directly? If, uh, like, is that happened? Should I, be, I'm going to put a link to Serenity Lodge. hundred percent. Put my yep. cell number up there. I'm disappointed if you don't call me. So I'll call you. Call I'll, me. I'll do a test run. I'll pretend I'm a <laughs> anguished dad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm available 24 seven. If I don't answer the phone, I'll call you back. Uh, please. Yeah. If you have, if you have someone in your family that's suffering, please call me. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll help you navigate your way through it. Um, and we'll take the appropriate course of action. Um, I can put you in touch with people, primary treatment centers, uh, and we can, we can definitely, uh, 
manage that situation. There is hope. You have to remember, there is hope. You know, it's funny. You know, we have to be taught this stuff, right, Joe? Like, I didn't know you were supposed to care about other people. I, I didn't understand. I had to look up gratitude in the dictionary. I had to look up accountable in the dictionary. I didn't know what that yeah. meant. So I was talking to a gentleman yesterday, and uh, <clears throat> he's a, a, a childhood friend of a friend of mine. And he had a son that had an accidental death. And then shortly thereafter, he was going to retire and move out West. And his wife gets sick and dies. So I said to him, uh, now he's a healthy guy. He's yeah. not an addict. Doesn't go, never been to a 12-step program. And I said to him, wow, you really had a tough couple of years, huh? Yeah. And he said, Dino, he said, uh, I have two words that I live by. I said, what are those words? He said, grateful and hopeful. He says, I'm grateful and I'm hopeful. And I said, and, and when I said to him initially, when I said, you know, you've had a tough couple of years, he said, yeah, I have. He says, but you know what? I'm not the only one. Yeah. There's other people that lose their children, lose their wives. I'm not the only one. And that's, then he told me, he said, he has two words that he lives by is grateful and hopeful. And and that how we live. Yeah. Okay. But somebody had to teach but someone us. has to teach me. I have to have a discipline to do it every day too. Yeah. Because it disappears for me. I, my brain's wired to tell me I'm a victim. Yeah. <laughs> for so, me. Something's happening sucks. to me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, gratitude. It's strange for me to unpack when I would be told to be grateful. I felt like someone was giving, telling me to fuck off. Mm-hmm. or like smart. And I didn't understand it. I was so sensitive to certain words. Right. Gratitude for me is using my imagination. That's already geared for anxiety to stop and say, well, that's not happening. I'm grateful. This is happening. Right. And it's just that it's, it started as a practice that simple. I think the world's awful uh, and I'll have a dream about it. Well, no, it's not. My electricity's on. I have access to water. It could start that simple. I have access to water. Most mm-hmm. of humanity didn't for <laughs> centuries. Exactly. So it's like, it's, it, you can get creative of how grateful you want to per, perceive life. It's, it's a pretty overwhelming experience. If you could start there, it's really nice to be alive. Well, I mean, if you think about like, uh, I mean, I know you and I know you would probably would agree with this. I mean, our natural state was restless, irritable and discontent. Yeah. And I had trained my brain to look at all the things I didn't have. Yeah. Look at all the people that had more than me. You know, I was trained and, and to feel sorry for myself. Yeah. Poor me. Everybody else has this. Everybody else has that. And, uh, of course, I wasn't willing to work for anything either. Sure. And uh, so, you know, all that's changed. With sobriety, all that's changed. And now I can be grateful for what I have. And I have way more than enough. And uh, what a peaceful way to live. It is. You know, we hit an hour that, that, that flew by, but, uh, I want to thank you again for coming on. I've known you a while and I honestly, I, I don't want to set you up. It was flattery. I, I wanted to say that Serenity Lodge hasn't gone unnoticed. And that's what I meant when I was talking about the guys, I'm still friends with guys because of you shepherding that place. Um, so it might be worth taking pause. I mean, you've changed the lives of thousands of people from your just being the steward of that place, taking it over. Um, 
I don't think you get acknowledged enough. Like in our circles, it just, it's just expected. That's what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, at 43, I find that is, it's a profound way to live your life. And I, I'm very happy to know 63. you. 60, 62 well, and a half. I, I was mixing it to me. Oh, you for yourself. I yeah. Think. I'd I'm like sorry. to be sitting where, you, I am? sitting where you are <laughs> in, in, in the degree of what you've gotten used to being a, a rhythm of your daily life is, is so impactful to people that are, or could be doomed mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. Uh, would you come back again? 100%. I'm going to keep doing this. I've really been enjoying it. Well, thank you so much for having me, Joe. I love you. And uh, I am so happy to see you doing well. Thank you. And helping people. I mean, you know, it's just, uh, you know, I always knew you had it in you. And, uh, you know, now you're putting it to good use. (laughs) Yeah. I feel a big debt. Uh, I almost got cashed out. I better start waking up. Right. So I I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Dino. Thanks for listening, guys. like to thank you for listening to another episode of all better you can find us on allbetter.fm or listen to us on apple Podcasts, spotify google podcast stitcher iHeartRadio, and alexa special thanks to our producer john edwards an engineering company 570 drone Please like or subscribe to us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And if you're not on social media, you're awesome. Looking forward to seeing you again. And remember, just because you're sober doesn't mean you're right. Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you.